episode of Dark Rhino Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have our very own Jordan Graham on the show. Jordan is our operations manager. Uh, he's also a bow hunter, and uh, we've asked him to come on and give us some lessons about uh, bow hunting and how they apply to business. Uh, Jordan has his uh, own podcast as well to push. Uh, you can check it out on uh, the various outlets where podcasts are available. But Jordan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, thanks for being... happy to be back again. This is round number three or four, I think it is. I think I you're. Know. This is number two officially. Number two. Yeah, we talked about sock. Yeah. We talked about sock two, and we could have done sock two again. But do we want to put everybody to sleep just now? Nah, no, let's have some fun today. Let's have some fun. So <laughs> there, there's a lot of relevance. And, and I got to tell you, I don't know much about bow hunting. In fact, I don't know anything about bow hunting. I, other than the fact that you use a bow to hunt, that's mm -hmm. about all I can tell you. But I got to imagine that if you're really intent on harvesting a deer out there, it's not accidental or, or is it, are you guys just driving around to pick up truck waiting for somebody to come by and go pop? I, I, this is the ignoramus me talking. So, right. right. It can so be. I'll, I'll let you begin. Give us a little, little bit of insight and background on this. Why bow yeah. hunting? First of all, isn't it easier just with a rifle go out there? You know, it, it, it depends on how you look at it. Right. So let, let me start from the beginnings and kind of my, my roots, if you will. Right. Okay. So I was raised um, here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a local club called Apache Bow Hunters, and ever since I was a little guy, I've been a, a member at Apache. Um, it's Apache Bow Hunters has single-handedly the people that are a member of that club. Uh, they're all very near and dear to me. Uh, for instance, my my aunt Marcia and my uncle Norm. You know, they're they're not actual uh, actual uncles. They're not my biological aunt and uncle. But, uh, you know, I, I refer to them as such because they've meant so much to me over the years. They they raised me in many ways. You know, they babysat me. Uh, very good friends of my dad. And, uh, you know, just being around those people. And there's so many more I could name, you know, but that's just one example of many. They're like family to me. And being around uh, archery ever since I was practically born, you know, my family always makes the joke that I had a bow and arrow in my hands when I was big enough to hold one. And that's that's factual, you know. And, um you know, so fast forward a couple years, you know, I was raised around it as a kid. A lot of my childhood memories have come from the archery and bow hunting world. And, uh, you know, again, fast forward, you know, now it's kind of one of those things where it's starting to be passed on for me. And, you know, now I've got my little daughter, you know, my daughter and everything, my little girl that I'm able to introduce to archery and take her to shoots. And now the role's kind of reversed. You know, now I get to fill that, that kind of fatherly role and introduce her to all the things that were so great to me as a kid. And, you know, it, it's had a significant impact on my life, much more than just memories. Um, bow hunting and, and the people involved in the archery industry have largely shaped who I am today as a person, I believe. You know, they've had significant influence and relevance in my life, and, and it's really molded me. Now, why bow hunting, right? So when you look at Ohio laws, you know, so my direct answer to this would be what was appealing about bow hunting when I was you know, reaching those teenage years and I could finally get out and hunt on my own. You know, I can drive, I can go to my hunting spots, I can do what I want. Well, here in Ohio and in, in Pennsylvania, for that matter, you know, the uh, the firearm season, the guns, um, those seasons are restricted. You know, there's here in Ohio, there's only about a two to maybe three week at best period 
that you're allowed to legally hunt deer with a with a shotgun or a, a gun of any kind, right? Okay. So that's why I'm appealed to bow hunting because with my bow I can hunt from you know the opening day in September all the way to the the closing day of the season in, in late February. You know, so I've got all that time in there that I can hunt. It gives me so much more opportunity. Uh, of course, being a uh, what I classify as a businessman now, working here at Dark Rhino, you know, it's hard to find the time throughout the week. You know, so it, it opens me up to a, a much broader uh, possibility in terms of time, right? But also too the challenge of the bow, you know, with a with a rifle or a shotgun, you know, I I, I never want to take deer hunting as easy or you know pitch it as easy because it definitely involves process, right? But bow hunting in my opinion, much more show, much more so than, than gun hunting, you know, gun hunting, you can just set up on the edge of a field and you just wait for the field and you wait for the deer. Well, with a bow, you got to get close, you know, and that's one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast. We've got a segment we call getting stick bow close with the hillbilly twang in there, getting, getting stick bow (laughs) close. Right. So in archery, you know, you've got multiple kinds of, uh, of bows, you know, you've got the, the crossbows that are arguably, you know, there a lot of debate, you know, we won't get into that, but then you got compounds, you know, with the tech, you know, the technology, the wheels, the right. all the fancy frilly stuff. And then you have traditional bows, you know, the typical wood bows with a, a string on them, you know, the the fun things, you know, and and those bows are very limited. And, you know, I was a professional, I shot professional archery for a number of years uh, when I was in uh, a teenager in high school and even early college. And uh, when I came out of college, even. You know, I, my first four years, I, I really spent time shooting archery. I traveled all around the country. Uh, every month, I'd be out of the state at a tournament somewhere. But uh, over time, I've really migrated towards the traditional side of things, you know, the, the stick bow, the recurve. You know, at first, I was appealed to it for the How raw... How close do you have to get with that, Jordan? I mean, a recurve bow, <laughs> to me, it reminds me of the caveman. You know, the... it, it does, you know, and I think that's kind of the fun, right? I go in the woods feeling like Rambo now, you know, here's my spear and I, you know, <laughs> but, right. uh, but, uh, you know, generally speaking with the, the recurves, um, and the long bows, the traditional bows, you know, I, I keep my hunting distance 20 yards and in. So if you were just to stand up and take 20 steps, chances are you'll be real close to 20 yards, you know, and getting that close to a deer. And that's a fairly long shot. You know, as, as you'll see in some of the video that I sent you, you know, I, I can I've had opportunities at deer where I could practically reach out and touch them if I wanted to. 20. It's, I would imagine that deer or any animal, for that matter, has incredible instincts and mm-hmm. it under and it can smell you. It can see you. It can hear you. Mm-hmm. It can. It, so and, and in all those parameters, it outperforms a human being. It, it can smell mm-hmm. more run faster, see better, is stronger probably in many ways than a human being. Absolutely. Um, How does it not become aware of you? So deer are very keen animals, okay? Deer are very well known for, so we're talking about deer hunting here. I would just wanna, for the sakes of the viewers, right? That's kind of the generic term for hunting in in this part of the country anyway, right? Um, But deer have an exceptional or an exceptional, excuse me, sense of smell, okay? Deer are able to smell, and they will pick you out from forever away, okay? Now, much like the business world, right, there's many factors that come into things that have influence on on outcomes, right? But some of them are far greater than others. So 
the number one thing that a bow hunter especially needs to take into consideration, all hunters for that matter, but especially bow hunting, because again, you've got to get close, right? You've got to fool that deer's nose, okay? You've got to beat it. And it's 10 times better than what you and I can smell, right? right? So how do you do that? Well, there's a lot of things on the market today, you know, about, oh, you know, I can... um you know, I can do things like I can take, uh, they make special soaps that you can wash your clothes in that have scent killers in them, right? Okay. So, you know, I view these like cyber insurance, you know? Sure, you can take a cyber insurance policy, you know what I mean? And yeah, that's going to protect you to a degree. But at the end of the day, and from a hunting perspective, right, play the wind. And I'm firmly convinced as a bow hunter, now this is a pretty broad statement, right? But I feel like I could leave the gym, go for a workout, go into the woods nasty and sweaty. If I've got the wind and I have predicted the wind and I've read the wind, I've done my homework and I have strategic areas pre-chosen based on wind direction because I know where my deer are coming from. I know where they're bedding, right? I know what to generally expect. Now, that doesn't always matter because there's always going to be curveballs, right? Right when you think you have a deer, what hunters call patterned, meaning he or she is always coming from the same area. The mm -hmm. second you go sit in that tree to hunt that deer, you're going to be presented a curveball. That deer is going to do something different. It's going to go around you. It's going to approach from a different direction. They're going to know you're there. They have a keen sense about them that even goes beyond their smell, right? But generally speaking, if you have the wind in your favor, so you, know, you always want to be what we call uh, downwind of the deer, okay? So wind's blowing this way, I want to be as far this way as I can so that the deer's walking to me because the scent is carrying this way. See what I'm saying? So it never, the wind is not allowing the scent to reach the deer. Exactly. The wind is your number one factor when you're hunting deer. You always have to take the wind into consideration. And there's okay. times, Manoj, when in my hunting spots that I have, right, if the wind's not correct... I simply won't hunt because when you're hunting big bucks, right? The big, you know, Bubba's buck, right? The big boy, yep. you know, you've got to be exceptionally careful about that because if you spook them once, they very well may leave and you probably won't ever see them again, right? So you've got to be very tactful and you've got to be very careful and you have to be very methodical in your approach to hunt that deer because as soon as you mess up one time and they get wind of you or they see you, there's a good chance. I mean, they, they get big for a reason. They're smart, right? Yeah, I, obviously. For it to get that big, it has survived many a hunter. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And I'm sure, do they have memory? I got to believe they might have some level of memory in them. You know, I, it's so funny you mentioned that because I actually did a little kind of personal study on this uh, over the past two seasons that I've hunted uh, here in Ohio. And uh, what I've noticed is last year walking in, uh, this is the second uh, sit that I had of the season. I, I went down to my uncle's place and I did my second hunt of the year and I got busted. Walking in, I, I went in about 3.30 in the afternoon, you know, go sit for a nice evening hunt, get in my tree stand around four, sit there until sundown, walk out a half hour after the sun sets, right? Well, walking yep. in, I hit a, uh, a little uh, school of does. You know, they were just piled up right there. They were all doing their thing. I didn't even see them until I snuck in because, you know, it's early season. We've still got a ton of foliage on everything, a lot of undergrowth still on the ground. 
And um, I walk in, I get about 30 yards, and I've got six does just staring right at me. Now, what's the relevance to that, right? They obviously spooked. They ran away, right? But ever since then, what I've noticed is throughout the remainder of the season, those does would always, even late season, you know, we're talking months later, they would go around that area. And if they were going to walk through that area, I watched them on numerous occasions where they would stop well short of where they would typically enter. And they would really analyze what was going on in that area, which leads me to believe that they remembered and they recalled the interaction that they had with me. Interesting. And, and yeah. I guess it makes perfect sense because if uh, you don't have memory, then you may not remember the tactics that someone used to potentially hunt you. And that goes against <laughs> survival. Absolutely. Yep. And they, they have a survival mode just like you and I do as a natural instinct. And to them, that's exactly what they're doing. Now, it seems like a lot of the what you described from a lot of the work is in preparation of the hunt. If the hunt itself may not be the most arduous part of it, it's studying your terrain, understanding where deer are coming from, understanding wind direction, understanding your capabilities and your own weaknesses, and what are the capabilities and weaknesses of, of in this case, the deer. Mm-hmm and trying to maximize that really is a lot a very similar to uh sales in many only uh, of course you're you're not hopefully you're not hunting your clients that's a bad thing <laughs> but um but when you are trying to approach someone that is strategic to you if you're a good salesperson you are going to do those very same things mm-hmm Absolutely. You know, and, and a lot of hunting too. Now, may, this may be a bit overkill, but you know, it's something that I've really begun to think about in my hunting process over the last year and a half. And I, I really mean this, this is going to make me sound like a total geek, right? But it, it's true. And that's the fact that if I apply the principles of Six Sigma, the Demaic process, and I do okay. SWOT analysis on everything that I do in the woods, right? Before okay. I do it, Right. I, it really does help me make those calculated approaches and those calculated decisions to put me in the best possible you know, position with the highest chance of success to be able to go in and harvest what I'm after. And it, it's really crazy how that works. I, I mentioned to you the other day that I, I now have a little whiteboard that I keep for, for the properties that I hunt. And on that whiteboard early season, you know, that whiteboard is aimed exclusively at just you know, mapping out the, you know, the, the property, because every year your SWOT analysis is going to change. You know, for instance, uh, two years ago, we had a lot of moisture. And during that moisture, and the fact that we had so much rain on the ground, there were new, um, obviously not full ponds or anything, but there were new kind of marshland areas that were created by that, which opened up a lot of, you know, new opportunities for me in the SWOT process, right? I still had the same strengths and weaknesses because the the terrain generally remains the same as far as the hills and the valleys and the things that I can use tactically to remain hidden from the deer, right? But there were opportunities that presented themselves through the changes that had happened, right? So change, things that, you know, 
could be positive or negative. Thankfully for me, those turned into significant opportunities because what that did for me was my uncle's property that I primarily hunt, that place is, it doesn't really hold deer. Does that make sense? There's no deer bedding on that property at all. Um, It's more of a transition area for them, right? Not the ideal, but it's, it's what I have access to right now. But because of that new opportunity and those new waterways and everything that were created, the deer were traveling it much, much more consistently, right? Because they, they had access to water. They had access to food. They had access to all kinds of things that the property now held, which caused me to tweak the O category of my SWOT analysis. And okay, hey, now I've got more opportunity. Now I have to go one step farther and define that demaic process, right? Now I got to define it. I got to measure everything going on within that opportunity. You know, I've got to analyze everything. And then once I do it and I execute on it, now I've got to improve it and I've got to find a way to control it, right? Those control variables being the key. So in many ways, the demaic process to me for hunting is kind of reversed, if you will. I always start with the control factors. What is it that I need to do to control everything that will possibly influence the deer and potentially spook them away, right? That's the first question I ask. So I start with control and then run with it from there through the whole you know, define, measure, analyze process. You know, it, it seems to be that um, for training salespeople, the hunter's mentality might be uh, a great course outline. I, I haven't seen that. <laughs> there's all kinds of training courses out there for salespeople. Uh, there's a plethora of them. It's an industry to itself. But I can't remember one that came across the, the closest thing I've seen is I, many years ago uh, when I was a consultant uh, in Cincinnati, I used to work, uh, I had a client, Cincinnati Millicron. Uh, it was a great company. They made uh, CNC machine tools, really big tools. And uh, they had this thing uh, in their marketing program uh, called the Wolfpack. It was the Wolfpack approach to engineering marketing and bringing to market products and it was extremely effective right and it was all about just adapting the mentality of the wolf pack all the interplay you know leadership decision making everyone doing their parts to come together and successfully bring whatever they are working on to market in the best way that they knew how to do it. Um, that was that was probably the one example I've seen where uh, nature was adapted to uh, a marketing approach. But uh, what you're describing, uh, you know, I think has a lot of merit with uh, how I would want our salespeople to to view their targets. You know, you would really want them to focus on a target. And then understand a little bit about it. Uh, pattern it, I think, was the word that you mm-hmm. Patterning, used. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I think one thing, too, Manoj, would be that, you know, it's one of the most appealing things. And, and I think one of the – and I, I honestly mean this, right? Not just for the sakes of this conversation, but it's truthful. One of the things that I, I think that I'm so appealed to bow hunting is the fact that it, it forces you to be decisive, Right. You, you have to be incredibly decisive. Now, here's the thing. 
you know, if you're just the kind of guy that, or gal for that matter, that wants to go out in the woods, right? And you just want to pick a tree that looks good. It's got some, you know, sign and some food around it. Look, if you hunt that tree enough, you're you're going to have an opportunity. You know what I mean? It's going to happen. Okay. It's just how deer are, right? But if you really put the time in and you start to analyze things, right? So kind of like business, right? If you just try, you know, sure, you know, you'll you'll make progress, you know, but you won't make the progress that you could. You won't ever reach your true potential, right? Now, when you start to be calibrated in everything that you're doing and you start to analyze and you start to really apply process to define the process, does that make sense? Yes. When you start to take those actionable steps, you're going to start to reach your true potential and that potential is only going to continue to expand and get greater and greater. Right. The quality of deer that you're going to be seeing when you really put that approach to it is going to continue to improve and improve and improve. You're going to have much more opportunity, Adam. Right. You're going to have uh, considerable differences in, the, in the, the size of the deer that you're seeing. You know, and, and that's a lot of fun about hunting, too, is when you say, OK, there. So why do we do things like scout preseason? Why do I spend so much time in the woods? I've killed a lot of deer. OK. I'll be honest with you about that. I've been fortunate enough to harvest a lot of animals. And the thing is, is it's much more fun for me now to find a deer, find a big buck on camera and hunt him and tell myself early season, that's it. Him or bust. You know what I mean? If it's not him, you know, but that's fun to me because I can identify my target, right? And it's like a business saying, hey, you know, we, we want to do business with this industry or this, you know, okay, great. What do you have to do to get there? What makes it happen? Define those objectives, right? And then once you define those objectives, you get where I'm going. You can pursue that path with much more calibrated approach. Now, do you feel that by being a bow hunter or maybe a longbow hunter in specific that by you created your for yourself a disadvantage situation to a degree relative to some guy with a long range rifle who can mm -hmm. <laughs> sit on his porch maybe and mm -hmm. and that's not even fair but yeah uh, but by choosing that approach you have forced it upon yourself to necessarily follow a process and is there a lesson there for companies where a perceived weakness can really be leveraged for a very strong leverage to gain strength? It can, right? And, and yes. So let me let me give you a little bit of archery and bow hunting context around this answer, okay? So yeah. hunting with a, a bow, especially a traditional bow, compared to a his, you know, uh, granddaddy's rifle, right? Right. So obviously you're at a significant disadvantage in terms of having to hunt, right? Because now, I, I mean, no discredit to hunters out there, right? But the rifle thing, like I said, it's, you know, you can set up 100, 200, even three, 300 plus yards away from a fence row that deer are cruising every day. Bow hunters can't do that, right? It's, you'll never get the accuracy or precision that you need out of the, out of the bow. Oh, and even if you could, you would lack the energy required to be ethical in harvesting that animal. Okay? okay. So, yes, you are at an automatic disadvantage. Now, 
what does that disadvantage do? So I personally don't view it as a disadvantage because see, by hunting with the recurve and the longbows, that enables me, it, it forces me to stay on top of my craft for sure. You know, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, a, a rifle, for example, you know, you, you sight it in, you get it zeroed. Once it's zeroed, you still need to, you know, practice with it and be proficient with it, but you're good to go. A bow, not so much. You know, a bow, you have to constantly be practicing, right? So that's why for a, a you know, a rifle hunter, it's easy for them to sight in and then just focus squarely on hunting because they know everything's going to be right where it was anyway, right? Bow hunters, however, we have the human interaction with everything, right? And I think that's another reason why I'm so, you know, appealed to traditional archery is because I control everything. There's nothing mechanical on my setup. It's all me. I'm, I'm physically attached to it with my hand, right? But there is the downside in that I must always remember during the season, unlike most of your rifle hunters, I can never forget the fundamental things that I have to do. I have to make sure that I get out and practice with my my bow weekly, if not daily, right? Because if I don't, I'm going to lose sync with it, right? But that's also a plus side in that I'm always staying up on my craft, right? I'm making sure that I'm as good as I can possibly be with it. And as a result, yes, that weakness that's perceived by distance really becomes a strength because I am forced to stay one and unified with everything that I'm doing in my equipment. Make sense? It makes a lot of sense. So let me get your thoughts on this. Um, when we look at the pyramid of pain in cybersecurity, mm -hmm. the very top of that thing is unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. uh, the exclusive domain of human intelligence, not artificial intelligence. And for our listeners, if there's mm -hmm. anybody out there trying to tell you that they can actually address that with their world-class AI tool, I would... Um, Take that with a heaping grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not going to happen. Um, but for that addressing that very tip of that pyramid of pain, do you think for threat hunters? I mean, there's been a lot of tools that have been brought to the market that um, in our industry are meant to, you know, you it, you're often looking for a needle in the haystack, and they help you look for that. Uh, the claim is in air quotes, that will help you find that needle in the haystack. Right. Uh, some of them uh, absolutely have their place. Some of them, not so much. But do you think threat hunters, the red teams, that if they adopt a more organic approach where they lessen a reliance on just the pure tools mm -hmm. and get in touch with the threats, the threat intelligence, the motivations, what's happening out there, would that be more effective in the outcomes with human-based threat hunting? Exponentially, yes. So, so then why the heck aren't you preaching this with? <laughs> yeah. So, so here's the thing. With right? some of our other colleagues, if you will. Yeah. So here's the thing, Manoj. You know, when, when I think of threat hunting and, and what I have as an industry professional now been able to really understand about the different approaches to threat hunting, right? That very much relates to what we're talking about with archery and bow hunting here and that threat hunters, you're right, it's, it's a manual process, right? 
it's one of those things that is is best done with human interaction. Now, human interaction being key. Like you said, there are certainly technologies out there that are relevant that can assist, right? Right. But nothing will ever replace human interaction. And I firmly believe that. Uh, it's one of those things where, again, in many ways, threat hunters are more valuable than technology to me because threat hunters are forced to stay, like I was talking about with my equipment, how I have to constantly yeah. rehearse, right? If you have a good threat hunter, that individual is going to be cutting edge in terms of knowledge, right? They're going to know about things that, you know, are, are just starting to surface. And as they start to surface, they're already going to have a granular understanding of what it is, what's going on, what to look for. And if you have a really good one, there's times when, of course, they can have that excessive, you know, value out of finding those unknown unknowns that the tools will miss every time, right? Technology only knows what it knows about, right? It, sure, it can do correlation. It can do some of these things. That, again, they, it definitely assists in the process, but the human element being involved, especially when it comes to threat hunting and your monitored security, you know, we look at things like, um, you know, th there's a lot of organizations, Manoj, that try to completely automate their SOC operations, you know? Sure, okay, autonomous SOC great. is a thing now. There's a right. lot of people marketing it. Absolutely, autonomous SOC. And sure, it has value. Nobody's denying that. However, having that analyst on the other side to actually say, okay, hey, the technology is telling me this, but let me, let me investigate this, right? That's going to significantly reduce things like your false positives. And more importantly, right, because false positives, not to downplay them, you're still being alerted. Good. Hey, we caught it. It was a red flag, but it's really okay. All right. But on the contrary, what that can do is take those things that aren't, right, incidents, that aren't popping as alerts, that actually are alerts, you know, and all of that noise lying on the underground, there could be a lot of things going on in there that are incredibly malicious to an environment. And the ability to find those, in my opinion, is one of those situations where the human element is really the only answer to be able to truly correlate that, find those unknown, unknown variables, bring them to the forefront, and more importantly, find ways to guard against them in the future. And yeah, at that point, we know the TTP and we now you right. can encode that into yeah. some kind of an automation. But it gets back to the way you're taking your approach to hunting in general. Right. It's a very organic activity mm -hmm. and you have to practice that craft mm -hmm. in a repetitive way and understand all the parameters of what's going to influence the outcome and control as much of that as you can. You can't control everything, but you can control significant right. – as I hear heard you speak, that's what was uh, – I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, no, and you're mind. absolutely right. You know, the control factor in hunting is, is key. You know, control everything that I can. Sure, I can jump on a topo map. You know, I can find an area that looks deary, if you will, right? I can find an area that in theory looks great, much like a, an autonomous sock, right? or something to that tune, but nothing beats me being in the woods, finding the deer, finding the sign, and making my calibrated decisions based on the direct threat hunter intel that I have received from going in firsthand, directly analyzing the situation, and 
then determining my best path forward. So, Jordan, let me ask you this. What's the role of patience in the finality of the outcome as a hunter? <laughs> Bow hunting a lot. <laughs> so, patience is key. There's many times when you'll catch me in my tree stand and I'll be nodding off and yeah, it's fun. I've woken up twice with, I, I, I fell asleep and I was just sitting there doing nothing, being incredibly patient. And I wake up, I open my eyes and there's deer underneath me. Hey, speaking of which, you sent us a little clip. Describe what is that? Was that uh, a video of you nodding off in the stand? We'll put it up on no. the screen so our audience could follow along here. That was not a video of that. So we're so, playing it. Go ahead. Tell us yeah. a little bit about it. So here's the thing with this video. So wh why did I send this to you? Well, first of all, it's relevant to a lot of what we've been talking about in ways. Okay. Let me start by saying this. You're going to see a deer walking under my tree. I was not sleeping. Okay. I was in my tree stand, so I had walked in, I climbed up into my tree stand, and I was just starting to sit down, and in came this deer, okay? That okay. deer, based on my intel, was not supposed to be there. Not supposed to be there whatsoever, okay? okay? For weeks previously, I had not seen, early season, your deer are very patterned, meaning that they, they generally show up roughly the same time. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, as the season progresses and you get in later into the season, that pattern breaks up. And then towards the end of the season, it starts to come back a little bit more. That's more of the typical deer hunter approach, right? And it is factual. So I had patterned these deer for weeks ahead of time, and I wasn't seeing anything until about 4.15, 4.30. So I snuck in my stand about 3.30, got situated, and comes this deer, and he's walking right under me. I'm thinking, where are you at? Because I have to be very careful, right? That's not the deer I'm after, right? But seeing him is a very good sign because he's, generally speaking, the first deer that, one of the first couple deer that walk through in the late afternoon, early evening, right? And then the bigger deer that I'm after tends to follow him closer to dark, right? So... <clears throat> Again, it, it comes back to the, the calibrated approach, right? That deer shouldn't have been there. It threw me for a loop, right? So, you know, we can talk about things like the threat hunting, okay? Well, I knew what I knew, right? I knew yeah. that I've got all the intel in the world. This is right. This is wrong. I've patterned that. I've correlated it. Okay, well, this is your baseline. Okay, well, why is that deer there? What's he doing there, right? Why? I didn't know. Right. Well, I started watching and as the video goes on, you'll see him start to go off up the hill. What I didn't get because I was sitting incredibly still and not moving a muscle was um, about five minutes later and came three or four more does behind him. And that's a really good sign for me. Right. So the pattern of events was developing with what I've seen. But the problem is, is that the timeline wasn't correct. Right. But the okay. timeline was off. Sequence was the same. Okay. Well, and they come, I'm thinking, okay, tonight's going to be the night, right? Everything's following sequentially. Well, it never happened. He never came in, the deer that I was ultimately after, right? Never hit, never showed up, never seen him. I got my hopes up. Well, get to be about 6.30 at night, right, which is when the sun's just starting to set and everything, right? So as a bow hunter in Ohio, you're allowed to be in the woods actually hunting, a half hour beyond the actual sunset. So if it says the sun sets at seven o'clock, you can legally shoot up to 7.30. Okay. okay. 6.30, I hear a noise behind me. So I'm looking back, nothing. Looking back, 
nothing. All of a sudden, I hear a, this, this noise you never want to hear as a hunter. It's called blowing, right? The deer, he blew at me, meaning he, he saw me, he smelled me, something. I still to this day don't know what happened, okay? But what did that deer do, right? So everything went as planned, wasn't alerted to anything. I was thinking, okay, sequence of events, still the same. Just sit tight, here it comes. That deer made a totally different path. He knew I was there, right? He knew what he was doing. Apply that to the threat hunting mentality, right? So everything looks fine, right? Everything is, is going on, your baseline, everything's going on. All it takes is that one time, that one time image. And you know this better than anybody, right? As an industry professional, that one time that somebody catches onto that, like a baseline kind of thing, they go around the back. You'll never even know they're there until they're exposed, right? Something has to expose that. And then once that becomes to the forefront and it becomes known, right, how do you get it to that point? That's the question, you know? How does that happen? And again, pointing back to the value of human intelligence and threat hunting. To me, that's the only way to do it because if there were recon going on and somebody investigating that situation, you may have caught it. Now, let me... Uh, just briefly go in a little bit of a different direction. You were also in the Marine Corps. Correct. And as an organization, uh, did the Marine Corps apply these principles in their operation? From a cyber perspective? From a cyber perspective or mm -hmm. just from a military mission planning perspective? Was... Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, if you look at it from a mission planning perspective, yes, absolutely. Um, the military is is a very calibrated, calculated environment, right? Uh, it, it's very contingency management-based, right? There's a lot of fundamental changes to the approach by which they approach things based on environments, right? You know, a, a, a full-blown combat environment is fundamentally very different than a peaceful garrison environment, right? Mm -hmm. So the method by which you know, command and order structure is given is fundamentally very different. However, the result always remains, or the, the end state goal always comes across in the same manner, right? They, you always reach that same kind of objective, if you will, but do you yell it and scream it and force it, or do you slowly and sh but surely enforce new policies? You see where I'm going? Yeah. And and I would hope that it would be more of the slowly enforced new policies. Right. There's definitely a time and a place in place, though. Look, there's the, some you know, situations go. where, yeah, you can right. issue a direct command. <laughs> right. But by and large, mm -hmm. in a company, when you're looking at a company and, and you want to change the culture or change the direction of an organization, if it was as easy as picking up your pen and uh, <laughs> writing a memo or penning an email and saying, as of tomorrow, everybody will behave this way. Uh, I think you would have very nimble organizations, but we all know from practical experience that's not mm -hmm. how a company works because that's not how human nature works. Well, I once had a Colonel Colonel Barr told me that, um, you know, he, he sat me down one day and he said, at the time I was Corporal Graham, Corporal Graham, come here. He had this real deep voice, big guy, just big stalky guy. He sits me down and he says, Jordan, come here, uh, Corporal Graham, get over here. Said, okay, he goes, hey, uh, you know, the only way you're ever going to get people to, to do what you need them to do is when you uh, not only serve them, but they actually know that you serve them. Think about that. 
you'll never get people to do what you need them or want them to do until they until you serve them and they actually buy into the fact that okay this guy serves us right and i think that's one of the areas actually i know fundamentally that that is one of the areas that the military excels at the upper management being the you know the high higher ranking officers and your high level enlisteds right they generally the ones that are successful serve their people right and and that's just a mentality that the military possesses that if you're going to get up into those upper ranks and you're going to gain the respect you've got to do it and you can't fake it that's one thing i love about the military environment you can't fake it because there's so many things and decisions that they make that directly impact everyone below them if they're in it for themselves or if they're in it for anything more than their people it's going to be exposed very quickly does that make sense it makes it makes sense mm -hmm. um and that actually reverts me back to the topic of patience yet again mm -hmm. and that is you you mentioned um a little while ago that sometimes you just won't hunt or you will go out and sit on your tree stand for hours um, and even though the signs may be right still nothing comes of it mm -hmm. but you still maintain that patience and you'll do it you'll do that over and over again in spite of not getting a result with that one attempt and i right I think a lot of people quit when, or in a lot of companies quit when that happens. Right, right. And Manoj, that, that, this makes me, so it pivoted you back to that. This pivots me to the dark rhino mentality on everything we do. Look, if we can't do it and we can't rock it and we can't own it, we're not going to do it. Right? We do the things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we, dark rhino security, can deliver. Right? If we can't deliver it, we're not going to do it. Straightforward, right? Same thing applies to the bow hunting situation. If I'm not at my best, if I know that there's something in there right now, something going on conditionally that I can't control and something that is going to obviously impact my objective in a very detrimental way, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to fix the problem, and if I can't find a fix for it to get around it, I'm just not going to execute. Right. I'm going to I'm not saying I'm going to quit. Right. But there, there's a time and a place when you have to step back. You have to analyze and you have to constantly improve Demaic Six Sigma. Right. Incorporate the improve element to your process. Right. And if you can't find a way to improve it, to get it where it needs to be so that you can actually have control over what you're doing. Why do it? That's a life principle for me now, too. And on that note, we're actually coming up on the hour, but I do have one just side question for you. Uh, and then I oh want boy. you to tell us a little bit about your podcast and for the listeners, plug those a little bit if, if you'd like. Uh, pistol hunting versus bow hunting. Do, do pistol hunters face the same challenges? Pistol or rifle? Pistol. Pistol. Handgun. That's interesting. You know, I, I've I've been fortunate enough to harvest two deer with a pistol, a forty five seventy, and um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I would say so. You know, I would say that the pistol hunters absolutely have 
more of a bow hunter's hunting mentality, right? You have to get close. You're you're restricted in your ability to. Sure, you could arguably say that you can definitely reach out farther than a bow, you know. But yeah, with but... what level of accuracy and precision out of a pistol? You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I would say that the pistol hunters are very much in line with that of bow hunters. I was just in terms curious. of their approach. Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, it's a good thing to ponder. <laughs> I, I, it just occurred to me, and I don't even know why. But because uh, I don't yeah. know anything about either of them, um, right? And whatever I know, I learned in the last uh, hour here. Yeah. Uh, so, Jordan, do you want to give us a little bit uh, a plug on uh, some of the podcasts that you do? Uh, and yeah, we'll put so, them in the uh, show notes as well. Yeah. So my new one, it's called the the Bow Hunters Heritage. And uh, what the Bowhunters Heritage does is we just get on, and I, I talk to a lot of my – most of my friends are older uh, around here. And I mean older. The Most of them are up in their 60s, 70s, some even up in their 80s now. The guys that I – and gals, for that matter, that I was raised around as a kid. And uh, we talk about all things bow hunting. Um, one of my favorite topics to do is just bring on random guys who have been there, done that, been around the block. They know more about hunting than I'll probably ever know. You know, and just get them on, pick their brains a little bit. Um, and one of the consistent things that you'll see in a lot of these guys is is their passion for what they do. You know, it's bow hunting is something that you you get into. It sticks with you for a lifetime because it instills values in you that are well worth the merit, right? And we talk a lot about that and and why bow hunting means so much to them. It's just one of those things that I'm trying to have for the next generations and my generation for that matter so that they can have access to some of the information from what I deem to be some of the greatest hunters to ever live. Well, that's, that's fantastic, Jordan. Thank you for sharing that. We'll make sure we'll put the links in the show notes. Thank you. And on that, uh, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks for being here, Jordan. Thank you very much, Manoj. Anytime. <laughs>